Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. I have something a little bit different today. What follows is a recording of the careers conference call that I hosted featuring your questions about careers in international affairs, foreign policy, international development, and related fields. I took questions ahead of time via email from you, and also there are several people on a conference call line who also got posed questions to my two panelists, who are Paul Stronsky and Alana Shake. Alana is someone I've known for many years, who is an international development consultant currently living in Cairo, but has had a very fascinating and interesting career in foreign affairs. Joining her was Paul Stronsky, who is a think tank scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and also teaches at Georgetown University. So before we dive into the conversation, let me just explain why I did this. So I have been creating this podcast for a couple of years now, and I'm grateful that's attracted a diverse audience of listeners. I mean, you're all unified in the fact that you are interested in some way in in foreign affairs, but I think you are also at various stages in your career, and a decent cohort of you, I would consider younger professionals in in foreign policy or students, and you often email me asking me for, for advice on career and college and grad school and I, it's flattering I, I absolutely love hearing from you please you know keep sending me emails um, but I thought that I would do you guys a, a solid and and get two people on the line who are very good at dispensing this kind of advice and so first I turn to Alana who I mentioned earlier I've, I've known for a long time and actually dispenses career advice professional she is a professional life coach and if you are a premium subscriber to the podcast, you get a huge discount on her life coaching and her career coaching sessions. If you are already a a premium subscriber and you want to learn how to access that, just send me an email and I can connect you and uh, Alana directly. If you're not, that's another good reason to become a premium subscriber. In any case, uh, I asked Alana to join this call because I know she'd be really good at dispensing advice. And she suggested I also reach out to Paul Stronsky, who she knows, but I do not who turned out to be a fantastic choice, who gave a different perspective on some of the very same ideas and concepts raised. It was great. Uh, And a huge, huge thank you to Alana and Paul for sharing their time uh, with me on behalf of you, uh, the listener who had questions uh, about your career. So as I mentioned earlier, I read uh, a number of questions from uh, people who'd emailed me ahead of time. I also took some questions from people on the line and I, I think I got to every single question that was emailed to me uh, in the hour that I had with Paul and Alana. So uh, if you are one of those who emailed me, listen on and, and your question will have been answered. If not, well, I suppose that you will still glean a lot from this 
conversation. If you're thinking about either starting a career in foreign policy or perhaps making a mid-career shift, there's actually many uh, of you people who emailed me uh, were considering how uh, to move from a degree that you have in a field not necessarily related to international relations, how to apply that to a job in foreign policy, international relations. So great conversation. I hope you found find it useful. I certainly enjoyed uh, hosting this kind of thing, and I'd be glad to, to do something like this again if there's interest. And I should say, putting this together was a bit of work on my end, logistically, et cetera. So if you loved this, if you enjoyed this, then please at least consider leaving a review on iTunes, or at most, please consider becoming a premium subscriber and supporting the show. All right, now here is the Careers in Foreign Affairs panel hosted by myself featuring Paul Stronsky, Alana Shake, and you, the listener. Thank you, guys. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So thank you so much again, Alana and Paul, for, for, for participating in this. Alana, let me start with you. Could you introduce yourself? Could you tell everyone on the call a little bit about who you are, your background, the kind of expertise you bring? I know I've known you for, for many years, but uh, just introduce yourself to, to everyone else and kind of tell your, your story, uh, your professional story of, of your life in international affairs. Sure. So at, I'll start from the wrong end and say at this point, I am a global health consultant and I work on monitoring and evaluation and technical support and management troubleshooting to global health and international development projects. And then I also work as a professional coach, uh, helping people develop their careers, find work-life balance, that sort of thing. And I'm an independent consultant, so I work for a series of different clients and kind of balance out my time the way I want to. Uh, to get to this place, I've been working in global health since, I'd say, 1998 or so, which is when I started grad school. I have a master's degree in public health with an international health focus from Boston University. And in the intervening years, in the last 19 years, I have been working primarily for USAID-funded global health projects. But I've also worked for the UN, both as a consultant and as an intern. I, my very first global health job was an intern with the UN Population Fund in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And then um, I've worked for NGOs and for USAID contractors. I worked for the State Department for a couple of years, and I worked directly for USAID for two years. I've had sort of a broad range of experience within the global health and international development sector. It's actually sort of unusual to have reached this sort of approximate 20-year point in global health, 
without having become a specialist in a particular issue or a particular region. So um, the fact that I'm a generalist and that I have this range of employers and things that I do is a little bit unusual in this field. And it's one that I feel like it's put me in a pretty good position that when people do ask me for advice, I've got a, a broad range of background to draw from on that in terms of different employers and so on. Is that specific enough, Mark, or are we looking that for is, more? That is good. And, and let me also uh, plug that you have a coaching service, uh, and, and you are a professional uh, career coach and life coach. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, but that people who are premium subscribers to the podcast get a really steep discount uh, for your advice and, and to have a, a session with you. Um so so great yeah that 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 suffices for now Paul uh, over to you Wh- where are you right now where are you working and how did you get into that position Okay yeah well thank you thank you again for the opportunity to come I, I'm a senior fellow uh, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington which is a uh, it's an international think tank We have uh offices uh in Russia India um Belgium uh China and Beirut uh Lebanon um, and I work uh, in the Washington uh, think tank, uh, where I focus on uh, Russia, Eurasia, the Caucasus, Central Asia, uh, and Russia, uh, working on both sort of research and analysis. Uh, we uh, organize various different um, public events, private events. Um, I do some policy recommendations to various, you know, uh, governments um, and uh, some, you know, other corporations and, and things like that. Um, and so uh, I came to this uh, quite unexpectedly about two years ago. I was been working in government, both at the State Department and at the White House, where I um, was uh, I was a detail employee. So I was a State Department employee who was plucked out of the State Department and worked on the National Security Council for almost two years. Uh, again, focusing on Russia during the Obama administration, um, and uh, so. Uh, those were sort of the, the sort of pinnacles of, of my, my career, but I spent about uh, 15 years uh, in uh, the ranks of the State Department, working both as a foreign service officer, um, where uh, I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and, and some time in uh, the former Soviet Union, specifically um, Armenia. Um, uh, but I also, uh, switched from this foreign service, uh, to the civil service of the state department where I worked as a research analyst in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, uh, working on, on the Caucasus, Central Asia, and eventually Russia, uh, in that bureau. Um, and I came to the state department, uh, after, uh, finishing my PhD in history, I did Soviet and Central Asian history. Uh, at Stanford University. I originally thought I was going to be a history professor, but uh, life uh, just uh, opens up various opportunities you don't expect, and I ended up going down the, the government as opposed to teaching. I still enjoy teaching, and I still teach part-time uh, at uh, in a security studies program here in Washington, um, but I'm doing most of my work uh, now um, at the Carnegie Endowment. Which which security studies program? Georgetown. I, I am a graduate of that very program. Oh, great. Yeah, uh, a few years ago, 2007-ish. Okay. Um, so, okay, so everyone out there, if you have a question, if you want to uh, ask a question, raise your hand, or for some reason you're having a trouble sort of raising your hand, just type something in the chat box. Um, but let me maybe just kick it off by going right back to you, Paul, and and ask you about that life intervening moment in which you opted not to become a, a full time history professor and uh, took a job in in policy making. Like, what what was that, and how did that come to you? 
Um, well, um, it, it was a long uh, uh, process. Um, you know, first of all, it's very difficult to uh, get a uh, a job uh, as a history professor, particularly if you want some control over where you want to live uh, in 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 the world. So, if you don't want to be in a very small town in in Middle America, um, uh, I realized that maybe being a history professor was not was not uh, the best uh, thing. For me, um, but I also, you know, I had done my work on Central Asia, um, on on Russia. I'd spent a lot of my, I spent two years doing my dissertation research uh, in uh, Uzbekistan and Russia. That's where I first uh, came across Alana, um, uh, and um, uh, I sort of got the sort of the bug uh, that you know I liked international things. I liked living abroad. I I liked uh, experiencing other cultures, um, and uh, you know this this. My experience abroad also coincided with uh, September 11th in the United States. So um, I sort of saw myself drawn less to sort of the the sort of you know academic discussions and and of 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 history of international affairs and decided that I I was more interested in um, uh, in actually using that education uh, to you know in policy. Um, and it was a very difficult choice. I didn't know where I was going to go. Um, uh, you know, I did apply for various academic jobs, um, but I also applied for a whole bunch of, of non-academic jobs in government, in the Pentagon, in the intelligence community, in the State Department. I took the Foreign Service exam. Uh, and uh, in the end, I, I ended up getting, a, you know, a bunch of different interviews. Um, uh, and I just felt that, the, you know, when I had to make a decision that the State Department and the Foreign Service was the be- best fit for me at that time, um, I uh, and I think it was. I mean, I had, I had a wonderful career in the State Department and, and um, you know, at times missed some of my colleagues there. Um, but um, it also was something that was uh, good for me for, for a while. And, and then I felt I, I wanted to, to move on. But it was, you know, I think a... Um, it was a, just a sort of a, a combination of, of different factors that turned me um, away from directly teaching, um, and that being my primary job, to also trying to figure out um, how I could make an impact in the policy world. Very good. And, and Alana, can you tell the story of how you landed like the first job in global health international development that you totally love, that you just fell into? So sorry for the long pause there, stepping backwards a little bit. So you have to look at Alana, recently graduated from Georgetown. I was working at the American University in Cairo in a one-year position uh, designed to find out if I had an interest in academic administration. And what I discovered from that position was I did not, in fact, have an interest in academic administration. But it did give me a lot of time to think about my future and my career, and I started looking at job vacancies. This was the very early days of the World Wide Web, thank goodness, so I could look at them, and discovered that like all the jobs I wanted that struck me as exciting and interesting and matched my vision as a kid with what I wanted for the future required this master's degree in public health. So I went off and got this master's degree in public health with no real background in global health or health of any kind. My undergraduate degree was in Middle East Studies. And so here I am doing this degree, and I have an internship, thankfully, which has an international health focus. And lo and behold, um, through a series of networking connections, I make contact with the uh, regional director of the UN Population Fund in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and I just start emailing this poor man, like, oh, once a month with like my resume, with a reference to our mutual connection, with a discussion of how I lived in Cairo and I could totally live in Tashkent because I lived in Cairo. And eventually, after about four and a half months of correspondence, he says, the thing is, the way the UN does internships, they go through headquarters and I'll never be able to get an American intern out here. 
However, if you already lived in Uzbekistan, then I could bring you on as a local intern, no problem. Mm. So I went and I got a job um, teaching high school students about foreign policy for six months. And I saved up my money. And when I had enough money to live in Uzbekistan for seven months, I bought a plane ticket and moved to Uzbekistan. And I called the UN Population Fund guy and I was like, hi, I'm here now. And, you know, he was a little surprised. But once he got over my shock, he sent the office driver to come pick me up. And I actually spent a year with UNFPA. Um, It turns out I was the only person in the office with a public health background. Everyone else there was a doctor rather than a public health person. So I could bring something genuinely useful to the table. And they had this great sense that like an intern is there to learn and an intern is there to make connections. So they put real effort into making sure that it was a useful experience for me. And it was just this very happy symbiotic relationship. And then I ended up getting an actual paid job with a USAID implementer in Uzbekistan because, you know, after a year I had the knowledge of the local context and I had Uzbek language skills and I was a really good hire at that point. And sort of the combination of those two jobs were the jobs that got me everything else, I think. Very cool. Good story. Um, so so the, the lesson is just just go to Tashkent. Um, uh, okay, so so let me do this. Uh, while you on the line uh, are thinking of a question, uh, I will read a question that was emailed to me uh, by a listener. Okay, so this is from Wells. And Wells writes, I'm writing to get your advice on how to transition to a legal career in IR. When I didn't get hired by state, I decided to go to law school where I was editor-in-chief of the International Law Review. After graduation, I came back to Maine to help out with my family. Now a few years have passed. I'm the in-house counsel for a corporation here representing asylum seekers pro bono, but I am ready for a change. I've heard there's a need for attorneys through UN volunteers, and that is a good way to get your foot in the door. What other what other avenues might you recommend? Where does one start? Question mark. Who wants to take this on? I can jump in on this one. Go for it. So um, I don't think that, that this guy needs to go right to UN volunteers. I think that there might be ways that involve an actual salary. He could start the transition. If he's in-house counsel now for a corporation, one thing he could look at is in-house counsel opportunities with internationally focused organizations. And then once he's in the organization, it lets him sort of learn the territory and the language and see if there's an opportunity for him to shift into more technical work. And then my other thought is, I don't know what the current status is, but the American Bar Association used to run international programs with U.S. government funding called uh, the Rule of Law Initiative, uh, ABA Roley. And they're always hiring lawyers and they hire American lawyers without a ton of international experience because that American perspective is in fact what they want. So I would suggest that he also look up ABA Roley and see if that program is still going on. Okay. Um, I might be able to jump in just because my wife uh, is a lawyer who uh, transitioned uh, from uh, corporate law in New York to working for a human rights organization in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota was the place where uh, they were looking for a lawyer. So she decided to pick up and and move to Minnesota um, and uh, worked on um, uh, refugee issues in Minnesota. And then from there transitioned to actually that program that the ABA program uh, that Alana was talking about uh, and worked uh, as um, uh, uh, an assistant country director and eventually the country director uh, of the ABA program in um, uh, in Tajikistan. 
Um, and then she then transitioned uh, from that uh, into uh, a job working on assistance, U.S. assistance, uh, working on the rule of law um, uh, in uh, the former Soviet Union as a whole at the State Department. So, um, you know, I think uh, he already uh, that person already has uh, a lot of the skills that they that they need uh, just hearing uh, you know what they're doing now. Um, and I also think, you know, there are, um, again, with sort of, uh, you know, different focuses in, in the U.S. government with the new administration, it's unclear, you know, what sort of opportunities are, are out there. But also the Department of Justice also um, has uh, various uh, um, programs that they are, are doing that, that are working on global rule of law issues um, and, uh, you know, placing people in embassies, placing people um, uh, in, in, other pla- in other sort of teaching um, uh roles um, as as contractors uh, around the world. So I think there are, again, I think there are other opportunities that, that aren't just a, a volunteer. And particularly if, if you are an American citizen, uh, those things would, would be open. Uh, very cool. Okay. Let me see if this will work to call on Anthony. Uh, Anthony, are you there? Anthony P? Uh, okay. I can't hear you. If you can hear me, maybe you can type your question into the chat. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm having uh, some trouble hearing you. So if someone else on the line, oh, are you there, Anthony? No. Okay. So Anthony, you chat me. You send me something over chat uh, if you're uh, if you're able to connect. Meanwhile, I'll ask another question that was emailed uh, to me. This one's from Nikki, uh, and Nikki asks: Apart from staying informed about what's going on internationally. Are there any long-term actions slash routines slash organizations to join one should look to if one plans to go to international affairs slash international politics several decades down the road? Hmm. Uh, so are there, are there professional organizations or others that might help you make that kind of, of connection if you want uh, that, that you can join over the long term? I can think of one off the top of my head. Uh, young professionals in foreign policy is, is a good one uh, for people who are already uh, foreign policy people. But of course, you don't have to be a foreign policy person to join that organization. You can join and there, there are chapters in several cities and you can go to their events and get on their mailing lists. And it's, I think, a pretty cheap membership. It's like 30 bucks a year or something like that. Um, uh, Alana or Paul, do you have any, any thoughts on this question? That's a tricky one. Go ahead, Paul. It it is a tricky one. And, and, you know, there's, there's lots of organizations uh, that are out there. Um, You know, the council of foreign relations and, and various, you know, clubs, uh, uh, you know, world affairs councils that certainly would help someone, uh, you know, make some connections and, uh, you know, improve their, their understanding of, of global issues, um, and, you know, go to networking events. But, you know, one of the things that I would, I would say is, is, you know, I think I did, did well on the foreign service exam. And I think I launched my career by actually focusing in on my language studies. I really focused in on Russian. Um, and then I did learn Uzbek, although it has atrophied uh, a lot in the last, um, uh, 15 years. Um, uh, and I think, you know, having good language skills um, and having good language skills also meant that I had good cultural understanding skills and and good understanding of 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 politics of a different of a different country, and actually with Russian, several different countries. Um, and I think that always made me interesting. Um, and so it always it, it sort of helped me get a get a foot in the door. I mean, I know that, you know, at the Carnegie Endowment, we have a, a program called the Junior Fellows uh, Program. Uh, I'm a senior fellow, and a junior fellow is, is someone who is right out of college, 
who is interested in global affairs. Um, and uh, you know, we hire people for a sort of a one-year um, fellowship where they, you know, get paid, they get health insurance, they get the whole the whole uh, the whole deal. Um, but you know, looking at at people's language capacities, um, their ability to speak and understand. In our case, we, we specifically look at Russian, but people working on the China program are looking at Chinese, Arabic program working at Arabic, or the Middle East program looking at Arabic. Um, and so I think that is one of the key things to really kind of, uh, you know, make sure that you, that, you know, if you, if you do know a language, um, make sure you know it well, um, and make sure you, you translate that not just to, you know, knowing, knowing the language, but knowing the culture, um, knowing the politics, knowing the literature, because, you know, I worked, um, I started my international career actually in 1995. Um, I was working for a, a USAID project in Washington, um, and they had a vacancy in our office in Almaty, Kazakhstan, and I spoke Russian, um, and uh, I was immediately tapped to move to that office. Um, so I was about 24 years old, and I um, became the acting um, uh, regional director uh, for an office in Kazakhstan, and it was my language skills and my sort of ability to function in the former Soviet Union. Um, I hadn't been to Kazakhstan before, but I had spent a, a, over a year in in studying abroad and then teaching in Russia. So I think that that really helped. Could have, I, I could have used this advice back in 2003 when I was rejected for a junior fellows uh, position oh, at the okay. Carnegie Endowment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think perhaps in part, uh, according to your analysis, because I, my language skills are just not great. Um, you know, I, I speak passable French uh, in a restaurant I can order, uh, but I, I, I really I can't do business in, in French. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I should say that I opted to take that security studies program was because it did not have a language requirement. Yeah. And knowing that I wanted to study international affairs, but also knowing that I don't do well studying languages in an academic environment as opposed to being immersed in it, and also knowing that I, I needed to work and then I couldn't just like take off and go to France or something for a, a year, um, I, I opted for that security studies program for, for that reason. Um, let me call on Anthony now. Uh, Anthony, are you there? Anthony, can you hear me? Bummer. Okay, so let me let me go down the let list. Let me hop that, in for a second, actually, sure, and sure, say sure. that you know, hearkening back to the previous question, if you do have the luxury of a decade to plan for what you want, like learning a language is one of the best investments you can make. Yeah. And if you're like me and you're terrible at learning languages, speaking a lot of languages badly, you can kind of make it up on volume. Okay. Oh, like I'm not particularly good at learning <laughs> oh, yeah. languages, but I speak four of them badly. I mean, I would okay. agree with that. I mean, I think if you, uh, you know, if you speak French, do everything you can to make sure your French is good. If you, you know, speak several you know, other languages, I mean, I think that's also, you know, just your ability to sort of interact. Um, it also shows your flexibility and, and shows your willingness to, um, you know, to, to, to do that. So, okay, let's, let's go to Anthony. I think you can hear me, Anthony. No. Okay. Let's try Chris. I'm going to go down the list here to Chris. Uh, one second. All right, Chris. Chris, go. Can you hear me, Chris? Yes, I can. How's it going? Can you hear me? Good. Yes. Thank you so much. And I should 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 shout out that Chris helps a little bit behind the scenes running some social media platforms for uh, the podcast. So thank you so much for that, Chris. Sure. And, thank you. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Chris Goff. I'm a Master of Public Policy candidate at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Uh, and first of all, thanks for, for speaking with all of us today. We re all really appreciate it, I think. 
Uh, and this question kind of is for both of you. So Alana, you mentioned that you consider yourself sort of a generalist. Can you hear me still? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm sorry, Anthony. There's something wrong with your 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 line, Anthony. You can you can type your question, but uh, Chris, why don't you keep going? Sorry. Uh, so, Alana, you mentioned that you uh, consider yourself a generalist, and Paul, you mentioned that your career has been largely focused on Russia and Central Asia. So, mm -hmm. I'd like to kind of hear both of your perspectives on the advantages and perhaps the limitations of becoming an expert in in one part of the world. Okay, Alana, you want to jump in? Sure. So I think it sort of depends on your career track. Um, if you're working in development, and particularly if you're working in U.S. government-funded development projects, career-wise, you're not rewarded by specializing in one part of the world. Um, it's not right and I don't think it contributes to good development work, but it remains the case that if you're the chief of party for a health project in Kazakhstan, then the next job they're going to want to give you is chief of party for a health project in Peru or sub-Saharan Africa. They're not going to keep you in Kazakhstan. That's not how the jobs work. So you don't necessarily move up and you don't necessarily take on more responsibility if you're tied to one part of the world. I think if you're in academia and policy, then being an area specialist is more to your benefit. And that's something Paul could probably speak to better than I could. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you are, um, uh, you know, want, want a career in academia, I mean, I think uh, definitely, you know, you need to focus in on what what sort of subject study you want to you want to look at, whether it's history, political science, you know, um, sociology, economics. Um, and then I think you need to sort of you know, choose a, a sort of a geographic focus, um, or one or two, uh, areas that, that you will focus many programs now, you know, want, want, um, uh, want to. Um, and, and I think that is, um, uh, that's a good, uh, track to, to go down. Um, you know, I do think, you know, in the state department, um, uh, there are, um, you know, the foreign service is, is geared around generalists. Uh, so, you know, they don't necessarily recruit you simply because, you know, um, uh, or, or you're not attractive and, um, simply because you have a really good understanding in, of, of, um, of the former Soviet union, you're recruited for your ability to sort of work in, in multiple different, different, um, areas. But over the life of your career, you, you, in policy, you generally become, more and more um, focused in, in in a specific region, and it's just you know where the jobs you get, who you know. Um, so I think you know that 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 eventual um, sort of geographic scope and the narrowing of that scope uh, happens as you move uh, in your career. And then I think you know at at some point, then you know for people who've been in their career for twenty twenty years, say you know, it then opens up and be, you know, you become more of a generalist. You know, I've been doing this now for over 20 years. Um, and now I'm sort of, you know, delving a little bit more outside of, of my comfort zone of the former Soviet Union, you know, doing stuff on, you know, being asked to talk about Europe, being asked to talk about Latin America, and, and just it sort of depends. Um, um, uh, you know, I think it's just the fact that that, you know, for a while, for the first 15 years, it was narrowing. And then now um, it seems to be broadening again. Does that help, Chris? You. Yeah, yeah thank feel you free for to answer those responses. Yeah. They were both very helpful. Thank you. Great. Okay, I'm going to put you back on mute, and I'm going to call on Monica. Monica, are you there? Can you hear me, Monica? 
Okay, so while we're waiting for Monica to join, if she, if she can hear, uh, I will ask Anthony's question. Hi, Mark. Can you hear me? Uh, oh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. Yeah, go go for it, uh, Monica. Ask your question. Yeah, like I, like I said, um, I've lost my voice due to a cold, so it might be easier if I ask um, just by typing. Uh, sure. If you want to type your question, go for it, and I'll, I'll read it for you. I'll I'll, uh, I'll read it to the the folks for you. Um, so I will put you back on mute while you type your question, and I will uh, ask Anthony's question. So Anthony uh, says that he is I have very good Spanish language American. Uh, pardon me. So I have very good Spanish slash Latin American cultural skills from Central America and an MBA from the region. Uh, I came back after a few years to work in capital markets, but looking to make a transition back abroad. Where besides the U.S. U.S. government and the U.N. should I be looking? Uh, Alana I think or Paul. Here where before, he's yeah. going to want to be looking there is actually at the Latin American uh, employers directly. Like if he's looking to transition abroad rather than necessarily into development work, there are going to be economies solid enough to hire him directly rather than through the USG or the UN. Um, like there are international banks. Go ahead. No, I, I would agree with that. I, I also, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, also just an MBA and, and the sort of the Latin American skills that, that you have. I mean, I, I think, you know, even if you would be very also, you know, very uh, inter interesting to many U.S. government uh, employers. I mean, I know it's it's hard to get, get a job, but I think, um, you know, particularly in sort of analysis, uh, you know, uh, area, whether that's the State Department's Bureau of an Analysis and Research, um, there's, you know, the Energy Department um, has one, the Treasury has one. So, you know, in addition to just the um, the sort of the traditional policy things, um, I think particularly, you know, working capital markets, MBA, Spanish skills, um, some, some of those opportunities might be open to you as well. Uh, so now let me ask the question from Monica, which I think uh, a lot of people will be interested in, in hearing uh, your two thoughts on. Um, so Monica asks, given the prevalence of unpaid internships in nonprofits, government, multilateral organizations, think tanks, etc., it's been hard to find openings for paid positions in this field. Do you have advice about employers who pay entry level employees at least some at least room and board or advice about IR adjacent industries in the private sector? What do you think, Alana? Oh, man, this is I such know. a hard... Like, I hate this situation. This situation is wrong. Like, it, it, it selects out people who need to actually pay their own expenses and selects in favor of people who are privileged enough to coast along without a salary. That being said, it, she's, she's right. It's terribly, terribly difficult. And in general, because of the U.S. Department of Labor rules... If you look at the private organizations in international development, for example, the USAID implementers who are companies, they are less able to use unpaid interns. They have to provide more more pay. So look at the companies in international development rather than NGOs because NGOs have a lot more mm -hmm. ability to really squeeze their interns. So the contractors, like, can you n n name some of the big ones? Um, let's see. Apt Associates. Um, I think JSI is a contractor. Um, oh, uh, Comonics is a company. Yes, Comonics. That was the one I was thinking of. I couldn't remember. Yep. And then I think Padco 
if they're still out there. Like there's actually a lot. Um, if you go to the USAID website, they have a list of like their biggest partners and they have their biggest NGO partners and their biggest private sector partners. And you can just go right down that list. Mm-hmm. And it's basically almost like uh, parallel to the defense industry where you have a lot of defense contractors. You have a lot of aid and development contractors as yeah. well. They're all kind of located in the same area in, in Northern Virginia. Correct. Yeah, and, and then the other uh, – go ahead, Paul. No, I would just, you know, in addition, I would just wanted to say, you know, the the um, the defense contractors, you know, they are employed not just by defense, um, not just by the intelligence community. They're they're, they're also, you know, uh, people who work for the, some of those contractors, um, you know, work for um, uh, other parts of the government uh, as well. And so, just because it's a defense contractor, if you don't want to work for, you know, the Pentagon, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be working for the Pentagon. So, so I think those are, are places that people should really keep in mind. Um, okay, let me go to another question that was uh, emailed in. And again, if you're listening to this live and, and you have a question, just raise your hand. So this question is from Ruth. My question, I have a strong interest in pursuing international development, but I do not have an academic background, degree, title in tech. She, I guess she has a degree in, in tech that reflects my interest in this field or the range of courses that contribute knowledge toward positions in this field. I've tried explaining some of what I have learned via cover letters to no avail, and at this point, I'm actually more discouraged and frustrated by the lack of entry-level jobs in international development, private or federal. I'm willing to start low and learn my way up, but not unpaid, please. How can someone who is already employed full-time doing other work that probably won't look too impressive in the resume pile find a way into a career in international development? What do you think, uh, Alana? I think that she should be looking for sort of parallel jobs within the international development industry. Like if she's working in tech now, she should be looking at the ICT for development jobs, or she should be looking for jobs that are similar to hers, but in international development organizations. I mean, there are big international NGOs. I don't know what kind of tech job she has, but there are international NGOs developing their own software, developing hardware, developing complicated platforms for communications. And so those jobs exist within the development industry. Like if she's applying for a program officer job or whatever, she's not going to get that. But if she uses the skills that she does have to look for similar jobs, once she's in there, she might find that she's fulfilled enough being part of it all, or she might find that she still wants the more straight up program officer or program manager job. And then once she's in the organization, she's a known quantity, she's learning the language and the jargon and the environment, it's going to be easier to do a lateral switch. Okay. Um, Paul, any thoughts? Or I can move on to the next question if you have. I mean, I, I also think, you know, just, um, uh, you know, depending on where, in, I mean, tech is a very difficult, you know, it, 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 you know, are you in, you know, IT, are you in development, what exactly, but, you know, um, most major international uh, organizations, whether it's a think tank, whether it's the US government, whether it's a, a, an NGO, um, also, you know, need, um, uh, need their own um, tech people. Um, and uh, given, you know, rising concern about cybersecurity and, and cyber issues uh, globally, you know, I think this is, uh, I think somebody with private sector experience um, in, in, in the tech world, um, you know, should just uh, keep in mind that there's probably going to be opportunities opening up more and more. Um, 
Uh, and uh, I also think there are um, many countries that are, you know, particularly, you know, uh, countries that are transitioning their economies that are sort of looking at tech as, as an area to um, overcome the sort of the corrosive impact of corruption. It's without borders. Um, you can sort of get people to help you uh, from a distance. And so I think, you know, again, uh, that does lead for sort of more long term opportunities, whether or not there's the short term that are there. Uh, so this next question is from Daniel, and it's it's sort of a, along a similar theme. Um, it's a, it's a little long, so bear with me. Daniel writes: I'm a graduate student in the final stage of my doctoral program with a focus in an environmental microbiology. Outside of completing a postdoctoral stint, I have been evaluating a career path away from academia and have gained an interest in international affairs. I'm just going to inject a little side note here myself. Um, Paul, your former boss was an almost PhD in microbiology uh, before she became head of the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Jessica Matthews, who yep. was uh, a guest on my podcast, discussed leaving uh, microbiology for international relations. That was one of my earlier interviews. So, Daniel, you can go back and, and, and take a look at that. But let me go on. Um, so Daniel writes, I am interested in pursuing a career in international affairs, international development, where I can leverage my skills as a microbiologist within the spheres of public health, renewable energy, and climate change. I've only recently started to listen to your podcast, thank you, uh, but to do so on a regular basis and welcome the opportunity to pose a few questions to the panel, since I don't have an educational background in public administration slash public policy. So question, what are the resources an international student such as myself can utilize to identify openings at think tanks, policy institutes, and in the private sector? And is it necessary to complete an internship in the field? If so, what is the scope for paid internships? Are these usually open to international students? So there's there's a lot packed in there. Um, who would like to take it first? I nominate Paul. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, I do think, you know, there there is um, – you know, I, I think you know. One, I would just like to say that 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 background um, screams somebody who would be very relevant to a think tank. Um, so it's a, it's an international think tank. I mean, we are now starting up a program that is sort of looking at cyber issues and looking at sort of tech, uh, the tech and international affairs. Um, you know, we I think we we have some funding for it, uh, and uh, I believe they are uh, they have hired someone uh, for that uh, for that position. So they are looking for somebody with a technical background who also can then speak uh, to sort of international audiences. And so I think, you know, that the background that, that you're describing um, uh, with your sort of, uh, I, if I said you're almost a, you're almost a PhD, um, so you'll soon, soon get one. Um, uh, and I think anybody who is almost a PhD, uh, you need to finish that PhD um, because there's a lot of people who are almost PhDs. Um, so whatever the field is, finish it. Um, and then, you know, I think this is a, you know, more and more um, academic institutions um, and more and more think tanks uh, are sort of looking at sort of this intersection between um, uh, science and uh, global policy. So, so I do think um, uh, there are some opportunities uh, open uh, on that. Uh, there are, um, you know, you're not alone that sort of the new head of the Nuclear Threat Initiative's former Secretary of, of Energy um, Moniz, um, and there's a you know a huge group of people who have uh, science backgrounds uh, who have uh, been able to transition in, into foreign affairs. So, so you're not alone. I think it, you just need to 
to um, find a you know a, a postdoc or or something at an institution where you can have some flexibility to look beyond just science um, and sort of how to apply this uh, to to uh, to global issues. What do you think, Alana? Maybe specific to the question of of global health. Um... Like, is there, you know, room for someone with that very technical expertise in, in microbiology and in, in sort of working in, in a global health field? Okay, this is where I confess that I'm not quite sure what microbiology consists of. I mean, I know what biology is. I know what micro means, but I'm not sure the precise definition of that field. What comes to mind for me are things like antibacterial resistance, the education and policy around that, which is a huge growing global health issue. And then the other thing that comes to mind is this is a person who maybe would be well advised to look at the UN and UN job opportunities because the UN likes to stock up on technical experts in a way that the U.S. organizations don't necessarily do in the same way. And even as a way in to look at UN volunteer opportunities, mm -hmm. which are paid, although badly. Um, uh, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Add something. I'm, now I'm also reminded there is a fellowship that I know several scientists have had, and, and I know several academics who have, um, you know, sort of not the traditional foreign policy backgrounds have applied for. That's a State Department um, fellowship. It's for people with PhDs, I believe, um, and I can't remember the name of it now. But I'm sure if you, um, uh, you know, go to you know a global studies center at that university or go to even the career center at that university which most PhDs don't usually you know go to um, because it's you know it's usually serves undergraduates but they might be able to connect you or at least know um, of what that that program is and very often it will put scientists into the uh, Oceans Environment and Science Bureau, OES Bureau at the State Department. Um, uh, I think it also has connected people to, um, uh, after that, they've made connections and transitioned to the uh, to the EPA. So I think there's definitely, um, that's an avenue that I would suggest that this this uh, person look, look, look for. And unfortunately, I just can't remember the name of the, uh, of the fellowship. And, and a couple of people have, have now mentioned uh, jobs at the United Nations. Uh, I th would just kind of point out that there is this quota system that has been referred to earlier that gives preferences to people of certain uh, countries, national nationals of, of certain countries. I think, Alana, you mentioned earlier. And it's basically based on um, who is overrepresented, who is underrepresented. And so your ability to get a job is, is based um, in a large part based on, on your nationality. And I did an entire episode – um, around the question of how to get a job at the UN, how this quota system works. And so you can look at, look for that in, in the archives of, of the Global Dispatches podcast. Um, let me check to see if anyone has raised their hand. And we have a, a follow-up from Monica, uh, who asked, I recently graduated with a one-year master's degree from a British university. Does this put me at a disadvantage when applying for jobs in the United States? Ooh. It's, good one. Right, it's probably cheaper it. than a, a master's oh. degree in the United States, but does yeah, it not having student loan debt is an advantage. Um, I will toss out a couple things here, which is that if she's a U.S. citizen, then that negates a lot of the problems. But she's going to need to make that very clear on her resume because U.S. organizations want to hire U.S. citizens because the visa paperwork is absolute misery. Mm -hmm. And then the second point is coming out of a British university, she's not really going to have a network to draw on. In the same way that you do coming out of the U.S. university, so she's going to need to double down on networking and connecting to people. Um, and I, I also think, um, you know, uh, also double down on, on not 
not believing that that master's degree um, is is going to lead to a non entry level job. I mean, I think um, uh, a uh, you know um, it you know she might have to sort of sort of lower some expectations um, just to get in the door um, because I think um, you know the the one problem with any um, just when I look at resumes we get here um, there's a lot of people who apply for master's degrees for entry-level jobs uh, simply because the job market is so tight Um, and so um, you know you want to make sure that um, that uh, you know, when you're hiring, um, the hiring organization wants to make sure the person is, is, is not just here for a few, few months until they find something better. So I think just managing your, one's expectations, um, and, and really tailoring your, your, you know, cover letter to why you want to work for that specific organization, I think, um, will, will, um, you know, make sure that you're in the pool that actually gets moved up to the people who do the interviewing. Um, and I think, um, uh, because sometimes people just look and say master's degree person is not going to stay here more than six months. Um, and so I think, um, you need to focus in on why that specific organization is where you, where you want to go. Um, the other thing that I would just, I think Monica also had a question about, um, you know, think tanks and, and, um, you know, trying to get, get jobs. I, I do have to say that the, the, the Carnegie Endowment is the, is sort of the one organization that does hire people for one year internship. Um, and you actually get a real salary and you get healthcare and you get vacation days and, and all that other stuff. And it, the competition because of that, um, is very tight. Um, but it is worth looking at and worth applying for because about 30 to 40 people get through every year, um, and, um, uh, so I would encourage, uh, anybody, uh, uh, to look at that and, and if they think they're interested and if they qualify to actually, um, send in an application. Let me just emphasize how great a entry level first job, uh, a research assistant at a think tank can be. Um, it really does open, and I speak from personal experience. So, so Monica, I was accepted to a one year master's degree program at a British university, but I didn't go. Instead, I took a job as a research assistant at the New America Foundation right out of college, and that just opened up my world. It is a great perspective on um, the policy making progress. You make, uh, pr- pardon me, you get a great perspective on the policy making process in Washington, D.C. You make amazing connections. You get to work on really interesting things. Um, and in, in this case, you actually get paid for it. And, and at the New American Foundation at the time, I, I got paid for it too. So it really is, to me, one of the best entry-level jobs you can get is as a research assistant at a think tank. And some of the people I was working for at the time remained you know, mentors and, and colleagues uh, of mine to this day. So uh, I, I just would would highly recommend that as a, as a potential spot, uh, place to look. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I mean, just one other thing. I mean, this just reminds me of you know any any connections you have, um, uh, whether they are from your from your university, whether they're from internships, um, uh, you know, j- just keep them uh, and make sure to cultivate them because you never know when when um, you know that might uh, be useful. You never know when somebody comes and asks, you know, do you know anybody who has these qualifications? Um, and just today, someone sent me a job application, a job notification saying, do you know anyone? And I just walked it down to the junior fellows we have here. And gave it to them because they both are qualified for for this job um, that that came up. So you know, I think um, uh, you know whether it's a you know a, a, a short internship, whether it's um, you know your, your university professors, whether it's uh, somebody you work for in the summer. I, I think all of these things uh, are good to to sort of to, to to try to maintain those those networks and and um, and use those networks because. Um, uh, I think a lot of uh, you know opportunity could come about that way. 
Uh, and Anthony P has a, a follow-up question. He goes on networking. What types of positions and institutions are good people to get to know? Are good for people to get to know? I suppose is spending time or visiting New York or DC recommended, or how much can this be done like virtually, electronically? Like how much networking has to be done in person? Hmm. So I'm terrible at networking in person. Like I'm completely awful at it. Um, I get all shy and mumbly and I don't know what to say to people. And it just feels really awkward to me to be like, hi, let's have a meeting and talk about nothing so that you know me now. Mm -hmm. And I should say, I asked you to write for you on dispatch because of your prolific tweeting and blogging. Like we never met in person. We have met in person subsequently, but like at the time when, when I asked you to write for, for you on dispatch, you, you were, it's not like we, we have known each other. That's true. I just knew your virtual presence was pretty awesome. It was so exciting because I already read UN Dispatch, so it was just like, you know, having a celebrity reach out to me. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so, like, this was sort of 2009 Twitter, which was a different world. Mm -hmm. It was easier to connect on a human level, and people still read tweets instead of broadcasting. So, cycling around a little bit, um, I'm going to blather a bit about my core theory of networking, which is that, like, Network should really networking should really be about forming true connections with people and ideally about being useful to them. Like the way networking stops feeling awkward is when you can reach out with something useful for someone. If you can say, I read the blog post or paper you wrote, and here's this other paper I read that I thought may, might be of interest to you, and you offer them that. And so then you're doing a service to them. You're not asking them to do you a favor. So... It seems to me, if you're trying to think about this the way Anthony is sort of leaning towards it, it's not really that there's a specific set of positions and institutions, is you need to know exactly what you're interested in and identify the other people who are interested in the same stuff and get to know them. And not in a sort of insincere, I want to step on them like the rungs of a ladder way, but in a sincere, we share an interest and maybe we can be interested in this and connect about it. That's a good that that's insightful. Thank you. Yeah, and and I, I would I would agree. I mean, um, I think you know you don't necessarily need to come and talk to the person face to face. That can be awkward to both the person and to you. Um, uh, but I've done a lot of of you know, uh, coaching, career counseling. Um, you know, just sort of hearing about what people are interested in. Uh, you know, by email, by Skype, by, um, by, um, by that, uh, th- those types of, of things. I've gotten a lot to know people, you know, people who've read some of my work, people who've read some of my academic stuff, um, have, have, you know, contacted me and, and that's always a, a way to start a conversation. Um, but, um, I, I think you don't need to, sp- to necessarily spend the money to go to New York or, um, or DC. If you happen to be flying through or, or driving through, maybe it might be worth, you know, stopping for a, you know, for a day, but I don't think you, um, uh, you need to, to specifically do that. And um, one more thing so, yeah, I want to talk about there, yeah. which is if you're reaching out to someone, someone new, you're trying to meet them electronically or whatever, like you need to make it really clear why you picked them. Like Paul just mentioned that, you know, people who've read his work and sort of are interested, things like that. And it cannot just be like, you appear to be prominent in your field. Like it needs to be, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you do this specific kind of work that interests me or like, 
your employer is one I'd love to be at and I'd like an inside take on what it's really like to be there. So you need to be very, very clear about why this person is useful or important or interesting. And that's what makes them feel special and want to reply to you. And you also need to make it very clear in the beginning that like, you know, that it's taking up time. This isn't something they're obligated to do. I get a lot of really demanding emails and they're just sort of off-putting. Huh. Um, Okay, so okay, Monica has a a question, um, but let me open up your mic, uh, Monica. I know you're you're uh, you have a call. You're dealing with some stuff, but can can you can you speak your question, or do you want to type it? Um, I'll try. I don't know um, how easy it is to hear me right now. I can hear you. Okay, yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you too. So, conventional wisdom has it that when reading a job posting, you should apply if you meet eighty percent of the. Requirements. Um, for example, if it says it needs um, five years experience and you have three and a half, but you meet all the other criteria. Um, but they also say that for federal jobs and UN jobs, <clears throat> excuse me, um, okay. there's no flexibility there. So I was wondering are there particular employers, or industries, or sectors where it's more common? to have that rigidity or are there, you know, some industries like the private sector um, where it's, um, where there's more flexibility. Uh, go for it. Yes. Uh, jump right in, uh, Paul or Alana. Um, so I'll say, go ahead, Paul. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, the federal government and, and the UN, I think, are are, are not terribly flexible. Um, uh, and it, but you know, there are little tricks uh, around you know the federal government um, uh, job postings. And you know, and if if, if it says you ha- you need a master's degree and you don't have a master's degree, well, you know, you're not going to get around that. Um, but if you can sort of sh- show in other ways that you have the experience, um, and the um, the job postings are usually very you know carefully written. And what you need to do is, is um, you know, for, for those places that are a little bit more rigid is just tailor your application to make sure you, you use the same language, you hit all the buttons, um, because a lot of the initial stages is um, it's really about getting past the, the, the HR section to the people who actually you're going to be working with. And they're the ones who um, are more likely to um, overlook, you know, it says five years and you only have three well, if, if you meet every other box, um, the hiring person is going to want, want you. You just need to make sure that you can get past the sort of that first layer of sort of the human, human resources. And, and so, you know, talking about, about um, you know, just making sure you, you tailor your, you, your application to everything um, and, and show how you have the experience um, uh, is, is one way to sort of t- to help uh, uh, through that. Um, uh, and then, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, government contractors, um, I think, uh, the private sector, um, uh, the, uh, sort of, uh, 
those types of jobs are a little bit more flexible than the um, uh, than the federal ones. Um, but you know, I think even there, you just need to make sure that that you, you know, the goal is is um, you know to get through that that first layer of of, of review, um, to, so you can get to the to the people who are more the the, the experts, the people who are actually going to be working with the person who they hire. Um, and I think, um, uh, and that's why I think also sort of networking and and trying to figure out. You know who is at the organization you want to work with, um, uh, and try to sort of you know double track um, can can be useful just to sort of make sure there's somebody pulling pulling on the inside. Alana, do you have anything else? Just to toss in that there are government jobs and there are government jobs um, to be directly hired by the U.S. government. Then you know they're going to have like requirements so strict they're practically legal in terms of meeting them all. But there's also this sort of whole gray area of like short-term hires for the government. Or when I was at the State Department, I actually worked for a private company called McFadden Associates, McFadden Associates, which was contracted to place employees at the State Department, sort of like a temp agency, only it wasn't temporary and it was for professional employees. And you know, McFadden had more flexibility about who they hired and brought in. And so the screening process was easier with them. So if it's a job with the government, look carefully at the hiring mechanism, because if it's not directly being hired by the government, that same flexibility exists. Mm -hmm. And then just to confirm what Paul said, like very often the requirements in particular is like the hiring manager's hopes and dreams. Like if you've that seen, seen that scene in Mary Poppins where the children sing a song and make a list of the perfect nanny, that's how people develop job requirements. <laughs> and go. like they know full well they're not going to get all of that. That's, a, that's our pull quote from this interview, Alana. <laughs> um, so we're just about out of time. Any, any parting thoughts uh, from you two on, on any, anything else you'd like to share? This is a hard field to find a job in, and it's a hard field to stay in. And if it's taking you a long time, it's not your fault. Don't feel like you screwed it up. It's just really hard. It's like being a really good baseball player in high school and trying to make the majors. It's just, it's hard, and there's a ton of competition. And don't feel like you're a failure or something if everything isn't happening for you right away. Um, uh, I would agree with all of that. Um, and I also would, you know, just, um, uh, you know, say the, the world is becoming more, more global. You don't necessarily need to be in Washington or New York, um, uh, or, you know, overseas to have a job that is, that is somehow affiliated with, with international relations. There's a lot of stuff in, in business in finance, um, Lots of stuff in, you know, even in local government. I know people who've uh, turned, uh, you know, their 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 interest in, in international affairs to sort of working for the state of Alaska, working on sort of international fishery pr programs. So it's it's not necessarily simply the um, uh, the federal government, the international development agencies. There's a lot of stuff you can do, particularly if you live on a border state somewhere uh, in the United States. There, there's a lot of stuff that 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 is open uh, uh, and available. And you know, a lot of states too. Um, you know, when I was posted overseas uh, at the embassy, you know, I was constantly amazed by. Uh, state government representatives um, and the sort of the uh, the the sort of international marketing, both trade and, and other things that states do, um, and, and that there's other opportunities beyond the sort of traditional ones we all think about. 
Um, yeah, and, and I just add, you know, every week on on the podcast, I have someone who's had a pretty interesting career in international affairs. Uh, just you know, to tell me how they got their job and and tell me a little bit about uh, their life story that led them to to that moment. So I've I've learned a lot, frankly, from these interviews and from learning how these different varied career paths can lead to meaningful uh, work in, in international affairs. Um, so thank you so much to Alana. Thank you to Paul. Thank you all for emailing me your questions. Thank you to everyone on the line. And we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yep. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Alana and Paul and to everyone who participated, either by sending me emails or by being on the line and asking questions. Sorry about some of the uh, technical snafus. First time we we did something like this, but oh, I'd be happy to do it again if there's interest. Let me know if you're interested in, in doing something like this again. You know, I love having these kind of extracurricular uh, kind of programming and and uh, ideas and maybe even events. Um, I'm thinking, I'm toying with a, an idea of doing like a live podcast episode taping in New York around the UN General Assembly in September. If that's something you are theoretically interested in participating in and in coming to, just send me a, an email. You can email me using the globaldispatchespodcast.com page and there's a contact button there. Um, but in any case, just let me know what's on your mind and how else I can use the podcast to uh, answer your questions and, and, and serve your both intellectual and perhaps professional interests. I will see you next time. Bye.